Hello, and welcome to episode 100. We made it of the Elevate Your Running podcast. Uh, Austin and I are so grateful for each and every one of you, and we're just so excited that we made it to 100 episodes. This episode is very special in particular. We were able to record it not once, but twice a few weeks ago. And it was a really great conversation that we had with a special guest. We are chatting with Rick Rojas today. He is an amazing person. He is so smart and interesting to listen to. So who is Rick Rojas? Well, you might be familiar with that last name. And he is the father to my coach, Nell Rojas, who is an elite runner for Nike. She's gearing up to run the Olympic trials here in February. Rick is also a pro athlete or was a pro athlete. So he held the 15K world record. He set the 5,000 meter PR of 1339 and won multiple USATF national titles. And this was all before super shoes were a thing, everyone. Rick also won the Boulder Boulder 10K Memorial Day race in 1979, which was the inaugural year. And he won and beat out Frank Shorter, who's also another incredible athlete. During his professional career, he was consistently ranked among the top 10 U.S. road racers, competed in two Olympic trials, and represented Team USA in two Pan American Games. His coaching has consistently yielded results across the spectrum, including Olympic trials qualifiers, nationally ranked high school runners, and world-ranked masters runners, and he resides in Boulder, Colorado. Congratulations to Rick. and. He just had another athlete qualify for the trials at CIM last weekend or just a few days ago, which was really exciting for him and that athlete. So congratulations to them. Today, we're going to talk about running fundamentals. We're also going to dive into his training tips and strategies. We dive into what the elite athletes are doing and how it can translate to quote unquote, the everyday runner, right? We also dive into the Olympic trials and his thoughts on the 10 a.m. start along with the course and just what he thinks about this February race. Um, so it's a really great conversation. We would love to have Rick back. Um, I could have continued to talk to him and it was just an amazing conversation. So I really hope that you feel the same way. What's really interesting is that he did predict my marathon time in this episode. Now, this was recorded two weeks ago. So it was before I ran CIM. And um, well, he was off, but I think uh, based on what happened on Sunday, most people were off. So um, next week, Austin and I are going to come back together and talk about his race that he ran on Saturday. Uh, December 2nd. He ran a 50 miler. We're going to recap CIM and what happened, um, what worked, what didn't work for me on race day. But then we're also going to dive into how to flow through a race when you are bumping up against the odds and your plan isn't going according to your A, B, or C plan. So stay tuned for that. But for now, enjoy our conversation with Rick Rojas. Elevate Your Running Podcast, episode number 100. We've been talking about this day for quite a while, and it's episode 100. 
this week. And as a celebration, we have a very special guest with us today. My name is Austin Myers. My co-host is Sarah Manderscheid. And we're beyond excited to get into today's episode, which we know will provide just so much value for you, the listener. Sarah, how are you this week? Hey, Austin. I'm doing great. Happy 100th episode to you. Yeah, absolutely. Sarah, would you (laughs) like to... Uh, tell the listeners who our special guest is today. Well, we're really excited for this episode. We wanted the 100th episode to be something really special, something that was really um, true to the Elevate Your Running brand and helping athletes really excel and elevate their running. So what better guest other than Rick Rojas, who is uh, based in Boulder, Colorado, and he is an exceptional coach. He is a former pro runner himself. He has a wealth of knowledge. I call him the GOAT. Welcome to the show, Rick. We're so excited to have you. Wow, that's quite an introduction. (laughs) Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Today, we are going to get into quite a bit uh, across the running spectrum, we want to discuss the basics of running fundamentals from someone who has a lot of background in that area, um, and then also discuss like training tips from someone who has been an elite runner and now is an elite coach in the running space. So we're looking forward to this conversation today. All right, Rick, so I would love to get into running fundamentals and some of the questions surrounding what runners can think about in terms of how they're running. I think we always think about what we're doing in terms of our training plan, but are we thinking about how we're doing it and how our body is moving? First question I would have for you there is, what are some of the essential, the most important aspects of quality running form and why do they matter? Oh yeah, that's, that's, um, that's a PhD uh, dissertation. Uh, but, but it's all, it's also dynamic, you know, because our bodies do change over time. But if I'm, if I'm evaluating running form, uh, you know, there's lots of things that come into play there, but number one, I would say is, um, this is more fundamental than even the form itself is just relaxation and, uh, not getting tight and not letting any particular muscle group, uh, dominate. And one of the things I see out there on the track is I see a lot of um, tight shoulders. I see people gripping their hands, and I see them uh, grimacing, making funny noises, f- funny uh, expressions with their face. And I can usually determine by their body language what's going on. There's something. There's some tension. There's some some underlying uh, stress that is causing some of these things to happen. So the first thing, uh, fundamental thing, is just staying real, as relaxed as possible. And along with that is not trying to do anything in particular too hard. Uh, I've seen a lot of people try to change their running form, their fundamental running form, and yet that has to co- occur over time. Uh, if you try to force that, uh, you could get yourself injured. And I've seen a lot of people try to do that. They try to do this, that, or the other thing, and they end up getting some, themselves injured. So I think the most important thing is relaxation. and then. Having somebody uh, get a set of eyes on you to kind of see what's going on there um, and see what the, the alignment of your body is. Um, if you were to look at a lot of the top world-class marathoners, they have almost an erect body um, alignment, and the, which means that their shoulders are over their hips 
and their foot placement is right under where their hips are. So as you move forward and you extend your legs, your, your knee will come up and your foot will come up, but it'll come back down right under your center of gravity and you move forward. So the other, one of the things that you see a lot of is people overstriding or striding um, and landing on their heel. And to a certain extent, you can get away with that depending on how fast you're going. But um, usually what you want to see is a uh, sort of a midfoot strike, uh, if you can. Uh, so midfoot strike, keeping your body upright is really important. Uh, the other thing is trying to keep your eyes only about 15 meters in front of you. So that aligns your head. It's about a 2% drop in your head that you're looking forward. And that will allow your, your neck to relax and your head not to go in front of your center of gravity, fall in front of your center of gravity, so that everything is really aligned in a vertical pattern. And that will allow you to be more efficient with your foot strike and allow you to move foot through the foot strike instead of fighting the foot strike if you're, if you're striking ahead of your body. Um, in some cases, you see people striking almost behind themselves. Well, they're not getting much extension, and you want to get a bit of extension if you're running marathon pace, but really it has to be a fairly compact stride. You don't want to overstride, and, and that'll get you through a longer distance. And Austin, as you know, running uh, ultra marathons, you have to be as efficient as possible, and you have to uh, stay as relaxed as possible as you go through. The different parts of a long run. So um, yeah, does that does that make sense as far as some of the fundamentals there? A- absolutely. I love that you really opened up that discussion with the idea of relaxing. That's something that you know in, in my training for this past marathon, I was able to see how I was running um, when I was struggling uh, in terms of like trying to hit paces and almost forcing those paces to the point that. I was running very tight. And then the difference between that and the confidence of running relaxed and still then hitting those paces. Where does the mindset come into that in terms of proper running form and running relaxed? Like we can practice it physically, but how much of that is then up to the mind to be able to put that into place? Yeah. And uh, we use a visualization uh, technique. Uh, and protocol to uh, visualize actually what we look like when we run on the track or on the trail. It doesn't matter where you're running. But uh, what I do is I do a formal visualization progression wherein uh, we take people down through a breathing protocol to a theta wave, which is known to be the most receptive to programming. So once we get to a really, really relaxed, deep state, Uh, theta wave, then we can actually program what we look like. And it's interesting because you can make that uh, that movie up any way you want. So what we do is we run a movie of ourselves um, running on the track. And uh, usually what I'll do is recommend that you have two personas, one that sits up in the stands and watches you run. And the other one is actually running. So that person who's running, the self-talk is, uh, in in my lexicon, I use words such as powerful, um, I use words such as smooth, effortless, light, and uh, then I try to program those into my running form. So I'm, if I'm sitting in the stands on my same persona, looking at the other person on the track, what I'm seeing is somebody who's running uh, incredibly light on their feet, 
skimming across the ground. And the, um, the models I use are usually um, the Ethiopians because they have the most efficient running form. Um, they just, just float across the ground. And uh, some, of the, some of the video that I've seen of myself is the closest I can come to um, the model is some of the Ethiopian runners, and uh, they make it look so easy, especially the women. And so I use the visualization technique, and it's extremely effective. Um, I know I've done this for years and years, and usually when I talk to people after they've done it and they apply the same visualization technique to their races, they say that was amazing. Um, you know, I was able to do pretty much exactly what I was able to visualize. So really, when you're doing the visualization, your mind doesn't know the difference between the actual movement on the track or road racing and what's happening in the back of your mind. So that is the, that's the psychological sort of psychological vision of uh, what we do to stay relaxed and, and look good on the track. So you're already pre-programming what you're going to look like. And so you don't have to struggle so much when you finally get to the actual event. Now, the other thing is, you know, looking at body language, um, there's, there's some things that people do. And, you know, Austin talking about tightening up in your long race is uh, a lot of people will clench their fists or they'll stick their finger up. And women will particularly will stick their fingers up, their thumb, I'm sorry, up. And usually if they stick their thumb up, I can tell there's something going on there. So I'll stop them and I'll say, okay, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to relax your hands, relax your fingers. And they'll do that. And when they come back, if they run a couple laps, they'll say, wow, that makes a huge difference. So what really what happens is I, I'm going to deprogram and reverse program that tension by having them relax a body part. It could be shoulders, it could be hands, it could be a face. But those are the major places that I look at when it comes to relaxation. And once I do that, it sends a signal to the brain to relax the rest of the body. And it's incredibly powerful. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I think it's something that we've talked about uh, a lot on this podcast is just like stepping outside of your body and trying to see the way your body is moving. Um, so to hear that that's a technique that you use and then also incorporating, you know, being able to assess the way the elite runners, you mentioned the Ethiopians are running, and to consider that and what that looks like in your own running form. We obviously understand all runners do have a unique style. Our bodies are all different. How can individuals take some of these like essential pieces to running fundamentals, but then maximize their unique body type and their unique approach? Well, one of the things is, um, like you're right, everybody looks a little bit different. They run a little bit different. And what comes into play here is what I just mentioned is the visualization. The other thing is if you have a deficiency or a perceived deficiency, let's say that you run uh, flat-footed or you're a heel striker, that's going to require some strength work um, because a lot of times people just don't have the strength to, to extend and then land with that forefoot a little bit uh, and move forward. So strength work is, in my book, is really important. And under that category, I have just pure strength, like classical strength, lifting weights, uh, lifting kettlebells, doing squats, uh, doing different types of exercises, resistance exercises. The other part, the component that we do a lot of every week is uh, plyometrics. So what that does is that trains your, your muscles um, to explode or to react. And so we call it explosive power. 
So we do things like bounding. Um, we do uh, frog jumps. We do pogos. We do uh, work through wickets and things like that. What that does is it trains your muscles more athletically. And one of the problems with uh, endurance running is it, it doesn't look like it's an athletic activity because you're just running and doing the same repetitive motion. But really, um, if you want to maximize your, your stride, your running form, you want to do some plyometrics. You want to do some explosive power, that type of thing, even if you're running a marathon or you're running an ultra marathon, because it does come into play. Um, and I'll explain that a little bit more later when it comes to uh, running efficiency. So that's, those are some of the things that we use to improve running form. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, when you're thinking about doing that strength training, I, I do think this is something we discussed with your daughter on episode 50, Nell Rojas, um, is, you know, the difference between incorporating that strength training into your programming versus the other mindset of like, in order to improve as a runner, you just need to run more and like volume of running on a week to week basis is the king. So, you know, you've seen that strength training component um, come into play and as a benefit for runners. Is that something that has evolved over time from your time as an elite runner to now in the present day being a coach? Have you seen that belief in strength training as a benefit to runners um, kind of evolve? Well, certainly in my program, um, I started doing uh, strength training way back in the uh, 70s. Uh, and we used a, the Nautilus system, which was one of the first CAM systems evolved way back when. It's no longer around, but a lot of the same techniques, uh, same, same principles are applied to the machines as you see in the gym. But um, my particular system has evolved to more what we call sports training. And I mentioned some of the things we do before, you know, resistance training with kettlebells and weights, uh, bands. We use bands. Uh, we use the, um, you know, uh, wickets, uh, the mini hurdles uh, for uh, our training. So we have all these different things that we started to use more over the last 10 years. Um, before that, I was probably more sticking just with uh, stretching and uh, some light drills to warm up. But now we've evolved into a more structured progression of resistance training and plyometrics. And these things uh, will eventually pay off if you they improve your, your short distance times, your 5K times, and your mile times. But if you do improve the shorter uh, distances, there's a direct correlation to the half marathon and marathon as a result, as a function of running faster for the shorter stuff. And that's sort of the context for the, all the strength work that we do and the evolution of my program, which is now pretty sophisticated. We do a lot of different things. We do circuit training and we do hill training and things like that, too. Even if you're a, mar a marathoner, we do this circuit training. And, but it certainly applies to any distance. I don't care if it's 400 meters or, or the marathon. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. So um, for those of you who don't know, Nell Rojas, Nick's Rick's daughter, is my coach and she's awesome. She's fabulous. Rick is awesome and fabulous. And 
I started using, or I started incorporating strength training into my training earlier this year, prepping for the Boston Marathon, added plyos, and really got into more of that strength component while, you know, building into a new marathon training cycle. And I have to say, hands down, it definitely moves the needle. So if it's something that you haven't experimented with, you haven't Uh, used in your training or added to your training, definitely give it a try. Rick, I'd love to know if there's any useful drills that runners can implement into their training. We love to incorporate drills after a warm-up and before a workout. Do you have any go-to drills that really can help improve running performance? Well, yeah. You know, um, what I do is, um, if I'm personally training, my warm up is uh, an hour, forty five minutes to an hour. That's my warm up before I can even get into the workout itself. But what embedded in that warm up are just a whole series of drills. So I start with very low intensity drills and very low intensity jogging and walking, so that I'm barely even tapping into any any sort of um, training uh, training level because what my I'm trying to get my body warmed up. So, for example, when I start the drills or the plyometrics, the light one stuff is like skipping. So I'm just going to skip. I'll do probably several reps of 15 to 20 meters of light skipping. Then um, I'll do a stretch, like I'll do a hamstring stretch. Then I'll do um, a side hop um, where I'm just very, very lightly um, side hopping out. And I'll do a couple of those reps, maybe 20 meters. I come back and do a calf stretch, and then I'll do something like uh, pogos, which is just bouncing up and down for anywhere between 15 to 20 seconds, and I'll do sets of those. So what I'm doing is warming up the muscles, my lower body muscles, more than anything else. But I also incorporate upper body, um, you know, when I'm doing skipping. I'm going to do circles with my arms. I'm going to throw some push-ups in. Um, I'm going to throw some, uh, if I have a kettlebell available, I'll do some upright rowing. If I have dumbbells available, I'll grab a couple of dumbbells into a running, uh, a running uh, imitation. And uh, so let's see if I, if I said skipping, side hops, pogos. Um, I do some frog hops, light frog hops, which are not too aggressive if I'm working with an older population, but more aggressive with a younger population. I do rockets, uh, which are more aggressive, and that is. Uh, you're going to launch yourself up into the air as high as you can with your arms and your legs. So, and that's that's a good, more aggressive one. The bounding gets to be a little bit more aggressive as well. So you have to warm up really well before you start the bounding. Um, so that's a good one. So there's a series of things that we do, and there's there's a list of things there that should help you uh, as far as getting warmed up. But you can also incorporate incorporate those into your circuit training, so you can be more aggressive with those. Uh, the other thing I, I would invest in is the uh, wickets or the mini hurdles. So you do one steppers, you do bunny hops, you do running through the side, sideway through those, and those are considered uh, either warm up or speed endurance training. Uh, but they're in this, under the same heading as when we talk about the the drills themselves. Uh, I also use a horizontal ladder, ladder, and I do um, things like one steppers, bunny hops. Um, hopscotch through those, uh, scissors, things like that through a a horizontal ladder. 
so there's there's quite a few things right there that you could start off with. Now there's more drills you can do, A skip, B skip, C skip. Uh, those are all things that you can incorporate gradually into your training. But I would try not to overdo it if you haven't done a lot of these things before, because I've had the experience where people will come in and they'll they'll try to do the drills and they just do a couple and they get hurt because their body's just not ready to do it. So you have to start very gradually and work yourself into these things. Uh, Nell actually has uh, a lot of stuff on my YouTube channel uh, where, uh, excuse me, Nell actually has a bunch of things on my, my YouTube channel, Rick Rojas, uh, the YouTube channel, where she does a whole series. There's probably 20 or 25 up there that you can check into. That's awesome. We'll definitely do that. That's Rick Rojas on YouTube. And, you know, you have coached um, some of the practices that I've been at on Wednesday mornings. And I have to say, our drill routine is more in depth. And it's something that I think we should really lean into as athletes. I know it's very easy to skip the drills. I know that it's easy to just, you know, you're on a time crunch, you're going to run, you might do a few strides and get right into the workout, but the drills really do help in a way that, um, can improve not just your workout for that day, but also your running form and your endurance. Um, so drills are a great place to be. And like Rick said, absolutely just like ease into it. If it's something that you haven't done before, so you stay happy and healthy. Um, I'd love to transition to some training tips and strategies. Now, um, you coach elite athletes and, you know, you have such a well depth of information and knowledge on running. And when it comes to coaching elite runners, what works for elite athletes in the training, the strength and the recovery sectors? And how does it translate to everyday runners like us? Well, basically, you know, you're talking about uh, exercise physiology and the same principles of exercise physiology apply to uh, a beginner or an elite runner. And, uh, you know, what I, some of the the major catchphrases that I use are gradual adaptation. And that means that you have to be patient and you can't rush things. And I know that Austin mentioned that he, mm. he tried to force force himself a little bit. Well, you can get yourself in trouble if you, if you try too hard. So the flip side is never try too hard. You want to let your body sort of organically um, develop mm-hmm. over time, whether you're a professional or whether you're a beginner. So for example, I have a number of professional, um, essentially, uh, emerging world-class athletes out there. And basically when I started coaching them, you can tell right away whether or not they've actually been coached before or not. And to a large extent, conceptually, they have not been coached before. Uh, they've been given workouts, but that's different than being coached. Uh, like I could show up to the track as an athlete and the coach can give me a workout, but there needs to be some interaction either beforehand, during, or after. So um, I do a lot of planning. And the planning, uh, you know, I'll plan out an entire year. And to the extent that I, I can, I will entire, I'll plan out every day for anywhere between four weeks to 12 weeks. And I've been able to uh, actually plan out 
a block of time and stay exactly on that workout sequence for the entire 12 weeks. Now, being that, having said that, uh, a lot of times you have to, in the planning cycle, um, dance a little bit with the athlete because, Sarah, what you said a minute ago, people have, they have responsibilities. I've got to get someplace, you know, I've got to be gone by eight o'clock. I've got to start my workout at six o'clock in the morning, be gone by, by eight o'clock. So in certain cases, you can modify the workouts. But going back to the original question, which is what's, what, what are the commonalities? Well, exercise physiology is one of those things. And basically, it's, I would say that uh, gradual adaptation to stretch, stress. But if I go back to my 10 principles, here are the commonalities. One is planning and goal setting. So that would be an essential for everybody. And Sarah, you sit down with your athletes and you do the goal setting session. And then you actually write their program. And they come out and they know exactly what they're supposed to be doing because you've already written that program. So that's, you know, whether you're a beginner or whatever your level is, that planning is really important. Uh, part of that planning is going back and looking at what you've done before uh, more recently. And I call that a personal inventory. So, Sarah, you're going to go in and you're going to talk to your athletes and say, hey, what have we done lately here? And we need to know what you've done lately so we can plan your races going forward. And under that heading, you've got miles per week, interval training, you've got tempo runs, you've got all the different components of running, strength training, uh, that type of thing. The next thing that applies to everybody is predicting the future. uh, And that's part of the writing the program itself. So I can take the information, Sarah, and your recent, most recent PR in the um, half marathon of 128, and I can say, okay, Sarah, that's that's pretty much going to equate to uh, a good, strong uh, marathon based on your uh, other races and your previous marathons. So we can predict that time. And let's say that time you're predicting is 308. Um, then we can write that program based on a progression of training. So the other thing that's related to the um, uh, exercise physiology is progression. So, and that is really important because you don't want to get ahead of yourself. Sometimes it looks good if you get ahead of yourself and you're doing really well, then the next thing you know, you're getting injured. So you have to be really careful with that progression. And that's one of the things I do with my, my pro athletes. Um, uh, one of the women that just came back from an injury, uh, she switched coaches. She came over to me last year. And uh, I had to really treat her with kid gloves on the progression because I wasn't sure how well she was going to recover from that injury. So um, I was very extremely conservative with her for the first three to four months. And now, after she proved that she can, she can handle the workouts, I'm more aggressive with those workouts. So she's getting ready for some races next year and should be approaching her PR pretty soon. The other thing that is really important is... Um, consistency, you know, showing up to practice every day. Of course, that's a, that should be a no, never mind, but really it's important to emphasize that you don't want to miss practices. And usually I use a 10% uh, rule. If you're doing 10% less, you might be okay. Less than the workout that's prescribed. If you're doing 10% more, that might be too much. It might get you in trouble. So your practice, uh, your practice habits are really important when it comes to um, you know, reaching your goals successfully. Um, one of the other things that's related to that is persistence. In other words, things may not look too good. 
and you may not be very persistent because maybe you're not hitting everything. So, and that is communication with the coach. You want to come back and tell the coach, hey, I'm a little bit behind. I need to uh, change my or modify my um, goals. So, but you want to stay persistent. And that under that category, you have communication with the coach so that you can uh, keep your your, um, mental edge there. And that's one of the things that Austin mentioned before that's really important is that mental part. Uh, one of the things I mentioned before is patience. And I don't care, again, if you're a beginner or experienced, you want to be very careful and you want to be patient with the program and let it develop. If you push too hard, you will get into trouble. You want to be careful to let that, that uh, progression develop organically over time so you're not trying too hard at any point in time. And that, that is also related to pacing your career. And that all goes all the way back to goal setting and planning so that when you plan the next year or five years or whatever it is, that you're pacing yourself through your career and you're not getting ahead of yourself. It all boils down to, at the end, is planning your racing and trying to execute your race plan as best as possible. And that's the peak performance part of the, the equation where everybody wants to run as well as they can doesn't matter again if you're you're running a four hour marathon or you're running a two and a two and a half hour marathon. So um, the peak performance part of it is part of the is the outcome from all these parts that I just mentioned uh, here. And uh, again, going back to the mental rehearsal, which is really important, especially for um, ultra marathoners, you have to have a good handle on what you're facing in those last few miles of a race. The easy the easy part is the first part. It's really the last part, and that's the visualization that we talked about earlier. That's kind of a quick and easy, quick uh, summary, but there's a lot more to all the parts I just talked about. Absolutely. I would love to stay on the progression piece for just a moment. Uh, we recently had an episode where we broke down some of the things that people can look for to kind of get that confidence that their training is working, even when it doesn't feel like it. Because we certainly know, like, you do this on a consistent basis, you want the results to come, and sometimes they're just not coming at the rate that you would hope for. What does progression look like for you as a coach? You mentioned kind of looking at, like, being careful with some, some athletes and, and not wanting to go above that 10% um, to ensure that they stay healthy, because ultimately, staying healthy is one of the best things that we can do to be able to be consistent and progress from year to year. So what does like what are different forms of progression? I think the easiest one for us to consider are like pace per mile across a specific distance. What else are you looking at as a coach? Yeah, so um, you know, th- and this is all within the context of your uh, goal. So let's say you want to run a 345 marathon um and that's next year <clears throat> then you can build all that progression into the programs and it's it's very quantitative it's very specific so let's say for example sarah wants to run uh her next pr half marathon in 126 which would be a couple minute improvement right sarah that's right so let's say she wanted to run a couple minutes faster and let's say she's picked a, a marathon half marathon next year um in the spring so here here are the the hardcore uh, stats that we have. One is you have, let's say, four months. Well, within that four months, you have X number of workouts. You're going to have a couple of workouts a week. You're going to have, and I'll talk about more about the specific progression here in a second. 
Um, so you have, um, let's say, a Tuesday workout where you're doing some intervals. Um, then you have a tempo run on Friday or Saturday, and then you have a long run on Sunday. So you have all these different components. You've got miles per week. You've got intervals. You've got tempo runs. You've got time trials. You've got races. They're a buildup to, to Sarah's half marathon. Well, what I do is I have data from the last time that Sarah prepared for her uh, half marathon. And it's all hardcore. It's right there. It's all in Strava. It's all in Training Peaks, wherever it happens to be held. It's right there. And it's pretty, you know, it's, it's cold information. So let's say that Sarah was able to complete a five by 1600 meter workout averaging. And I've read your workout, Sarah. I know what you're doing. <laughs> I don't doubt that. <laughs> so let's say that Sarah was going to do, she has done five by uh, 1600 meters as part of her, her buildup. And let's say she's averaged 630 for each one of those. Uh, and, you know, they're going to be different in that, uh, in that sequence. And let's say she went 630, 625, 620, 615, and the average ended up being about 620. Well, we have that data, and we have an improvement, the 128 half marathon improvement. Now, the progression specifically says we're going to five seconds faster per rep. So instead of our 620 average, we're going to hit a 615 average. Now, theoretically, that would translate into a faster uh, half marathon. But also, we, we're going to measure her tempo runs. We're going to measure her 5K races and time trials. Let's say she's doing a 5,000-meter race or time trial. And we know that last time she ran 1850. Well, we're looking for an improvement of about 20 seconds, maybe 25 seconds, to achieve that 126 uh, half marathon improvement. So those are both very hardcore uh, progressions. So we're looking at... Um, we're looking at interval training, tempo runs, time trials, and races. And we're going to build in a progression into her training program for the next uh, three months before her next half marathon. So, we're, so it's all pretty much quantitative in terms of what we're looking for as far as a progression is concerned. And as a coach, you can write those into the program. So that's, that's kind of how I look at things. You know, I look at things from a more quantitative point of view and less from a conceptual point of view. So I'm going to be very specific about why, what I mean by progression. What, what are some of the like, intangible pieces for a runner? Um, because I know for a lot of people, sometimes the results are there um, throughout their workouts, but then they struggle with the performance piece on race day. What do you feel like um, you can kind of credit that to, and how can that be developed for certain athletes? Yeah, so again, um, I'm very specific about uh, what we want, what the outcome is. And like in Sarah's case, let's say it's a 125.30 we're looking for. Does that make sense, Sarah, next spring? Somewhere in that range? Yes. <laughs> I would love that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Why not? <laughs> so, so going back to the, intangible, <laughs> the intangibles, um, a lot of it, again, is, is very quantitative. You can't get away from that. So going back to the intangibles, you know, how do I get there? I'm not motivated. I, I need more motivation. Um, then I go back one step farther to the visualization. Now, let's say there's a missing piece. And that missing piece could be any number of things. Like it could be, okay, my coaching's not quite there yet. I've got to have a better rapport with the coach. Or, you know what? My, my work schedule is really cramping me. I need to figure that thing out. 
Um, and these are these are really more tangibles and, and less intangibles. But when I mm-hmm. talk about but when I talk about the intangibles, that has more to do with the visualization. In other words, it prepares your body, it pre-prepares your body for a competition. It could be a five thousand and a half marathon, it could be anything. But that's more of an intangible because what you're doing is actually visualizing what your body's going to do going forward. I don't use a lot of motivational stuff other than visualization because I, I don't know that it works. And I, I really don't have a lot of experience with like pep talks and things like that. I'm more uh, aligned with uh, actually the physical part of it, which is the um, pre planning and then going through the um, progression of interval training, tempo runs, and long runs, and things like that, that will yield uh, the outcome that we want. Now, if you don't get that outcome, go back and I, I do a, a post, uh, post-race uh, debrief, and I've got a list of about 20 things that we go through. And I ask the athlete, well, how do we do this last time? What, what do we need to update here? What do we need to improve? Uh, how do you need to improve to get faster? And what are the aspects there? And usually it's not just one thing. It's usually multiple things. And uh, it could be anything from consistency uh, and getting your miles up to uh, getting a little bit better focus on uh, those uh, interval training sessions. And that, to a large extent, is the visualization that we talked about earlier. So absolutely, I don't know if that <laughs> totally answered Austin's question, because Austin tends to go over more to the um, motivational uh, side of things, and I think maybe for a um, an endurance runner, for an ultra marathoner, there may be more uh, more aspects of the motivation that come into play because we're talking about running fifty miles, thirty miles, sixty miles, hundred miles, and that's going to be a special motivation issue. Um, but a lot of that has to do with the event itself. If you can take yourself to that event, and you can go through that event your body will automatically respond to a visualization, a pre-planning session. It just does it. It's just how it works. So I always encourage people to do those, uh, the relaxation and visualization sessions. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I practice visualization for the first time in this prep leading into the Chicago 5K, the Indy Half, and now I'm preparing to run CIM in a few weeks. And it works. It absolutely works. I visualized myself running the course, the paces I wanted to run, how I was going to feel. And even at a moment during the Indianapolis half where it didn't feel like pace was flowing the way that I wanted to, I took myself back to South Boulder on a route that I'd run many tempo runs on that I'd executed really well and strong. And it instantly relaxed me and I was able to get into pace and then produce the race that I had. And it was a really great way. um, I think it's a good example and it's a good example to indicate that it does work. So if it is something that maybe you haven't tapped into, that visualization piece is key and it will move the needle. So Rick, I know that, you know, you coach youth, you coach elite marathoners or elite runners, you coach, um, older, uh, runners and athletes, and you coach all distances. 
I want to know what is your favorite marathon workout to prescribe and why? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'll tell you what it is. It's uh, five by sixteen hundred meters. Oh, (laughs) why? And there's reasons why. (laughs) Well, um, I have to back up a little bit and talk about a little exercise physiology. And uh, one of the things that is overlooked to a large extent by uh, American, even pro runners uh, and aspiring pros and emerging pros and other people who are pretty darn good runners. I mean, people are running two thirty for a marathon. Women. Uh, men who are running down in the low 220s or high teens, is the development of speed. Now, this applies to everybody, whether you're a sprinter or a marathoner or ultramarathoner, because there are certain principles that are physiological principles that apply to running faster. So I am a big fan of learning how to run 400 meters and how that applies to running a faster mile and how the faster mile applies and translates to running a faster marathon. So basically, it has to do with building anaerobic capacity and building VO2 max, increasing VO2 max. And those are uh, the VO2 max is just an index. It's a metric that we use a lot to measure uh, your VO, your, how much oxygen you can metabolize. Um, but it also is is correlate, highly correlated to how fast you can run different distances. So, um, but that's one of the reasons why I can coach everything from sprinting all the way up to the marathon and beyond is the, uh, the fact that uh, the physiological principles apply to everybody no matter what level. So uh, in terms of uh, being able to coach this whole sp- this spectrum of people, is the same, very same principles apply. But in terms of endurance running, which is important, I think that the audience here would be interested to know that improving your footer meter time will improve your marathon. And that you need to pay attention to speed. And I do a lot of speed work with my marathoners. We, we work on running a faster mile. We work on running a faster 400 meters. And uh, to a lot of times on, in a workout, for example, I'll say, okay, we're, we're doing, say, five times a mile. And then we're going back to the five times a mile. I want you to run this sequence of miles. It's called a vic- victory formation. So you start off with an easy interval mile. Let's say you're, you're wanting to run a sub six minute mile for your fast one. Um, I start off with a six, like a 630 or 640. Then I bring down, bring it down to a 620, but we're doing strides in between. So it's an, what I call an enhanced warm up. Then a number three, I'll say, okay, we're going to go for a time trial here. And I want you to run X or Y time based on your history and based on what you're prepared to do. And let's say that time happens to be 550 and that's a PR. We're going to run a PR embedded in this workout, this victory workout. But after we do that PR, we're going to go back up the scale either side. We're going to run a 620, maybe in a 630. But the average turns out to be what you want. At the same time, you're getting a high-quality uh, speed session or time trial embedded in this V formation, this victory formation interval session. And the other thing with the 5 by 1600 meters, it can, it can be written as 5 by 1600 meters, but really you can make it up any way you want. So maybe I'll do surging on number two and kicking in number three and a fast one on number four, and then back to, to marathon pace on number five. So I use different formulas in different situations, but you have so many variables in there that you can work with that you can apply and make it up to any, basically any situation, whether you're training for a half marathon, marathon, or other event. Yeah. 
So it is, and that's kind of a high level treatment of it, but really it has more to do with the coaching relationship with the athlete. And when he gets down to uh, actually getting on the track and doing it is actually interacting with the athlete, reading their body language and finding out what they're ready to do. And a lot of times I can have somebody come out and they're going, I, I can't do this. I can't do this. Well, here's what I want you to do. Get warmed up, right? Right, Sarah? Get warmed up. Yeah. And I want you to just go through this con- this sequence. And then we're going to talk about when you get to that festival, we'll talk about that. And usually they're pretty nervous. Um, but probably 90% of the time they're going to run what you expect them to run. And uh, so if you don't overthink it, you're going to be better off than trying to, trying to over, you know, get too afraid of it. And so um, there, there's more to it than that. I mean, you know, really in my situation that you have to come out and experience the interaction, the coaching interaction with the individual athlete. And there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, a lot of stuff happens on a, on a minute to second basis when you're talking about interacting with the athlete on the track. And for example, with Nell, she knows me so well, she kind of knows what to expect. And Molly Grable, you know, they've been working with me a long time. They know what to expect and say, are you going to ask me to do such and such? I said, well, maybe, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> but, but I had Mayor Terrario out the other night, the Israeli uh, marathoner the other day. And uh, I said, okay, we're going to do um, this thousand meter progression. It's very similar to the five by thousand, five by 1600 meters. But I want you to run a PR on number three. She says, what, what? I said, yeah. So I said, have you ever broken X time for a thousand meters? She says, well, my best is 304, 303. I said, okay, you're going to run three flat this time. So I said, go do it. She goes out. She runs exactly three flat for her fast one. And that was a PR for her. So wow. you can have a lot of fun. You can have a lot of fun from a coaching perspective because you are, <laughs> you're, able to, you're able to actually orchestrate stuff that people never thought they could do. And if you, if you know yeah. how to do it, then people will walk away and they go, I don't know how I did that. How do I do that? And they'll come up to you and say, uh, thanks for, thanks for um, helping me with that. I, I didn't think I could do it. So I know you didn't think you'd do it, but I knew, I knew you could do it. So that was a breakthrough experience for them. And they can take that to the next workout and know that, hey, I've got this uh, credential under my belt and I can do a little bit faster next time. And that back, that, yeah. that's back to Austin's uh, question about progression. Yeah, it's like the power of coaching, right? It's such a strong place to be. And it's so strong to be able to be on the track with athletes, see them running in person, um, adjusting the plan as needed and finding the wins along the way. And I had to laugh and I was literally laughing out loud because my, one of my first, it was definitely last summer. It was my first five by 1600 with now. I was that nervous and she could read it all over my face when I walked up to the field to start (laughs) the drills. And she's like, Oh, how are you feeling today? And I'm like, I am nervous. Like I do not feel okay about this, but you know, if you chunk it down and you take it rep by rep and you meet yourself where you're at, but you also believe in yourself. And if you know, your coach believes in you, it's a powerful thing. And that in-person coaching is very, very powerful. Absolutely love it. Um, do you have any mindset tips? I know we talked about visualization, but do you have any mindset tips for an athlete who might be nervous to run that 1600 meters or that 1k rep PR? Um, 
to give them any advice in the moment? Or are you more, uh, you know, the type of coach that says, Hey, let's just get it done. I believe in you. Get it done. <laughs> well, no, but that's a good question. Um, so let's say I'm out um, on the track with a few people and uh, we're warming up. And it's similar to what your experience was with, with Nell doing five by 1600 meters. Well, right off the bat, Nell could tell that you were nervous. Mm-hmm. And, and immediately I can tell when people come out kind of where their mind is, uh, not only by their body language, but by what they say. So you, they, there's certain keywords that you can you can um, take and you can process, and they're different for everybody. Um, and a lot of times people come out and say, "Well, you know, I just don't feel good. I it's my left hamstring." I say, "Okay, good. So we're going to pay attention. We're really going to get that left hamstring warmed up." And then um, after a while, they completely forget about they they had a, a sore left hamstring, or they may come out and say, "I didn't sleep last night." So, okay, good. We're going to adjust your your workout accordingly. And then I'll trick them into doing whatever we needed to do in the first place. <laughs> but I have, so, but it's more the interaction. And it's more my ability to read the the, mm-hmm. the body language, and less they're taking under their control. But they have to believe in me. They have to believe in what I'm doing. And once I have them, once they do a workout and they go, "Oh my God, I can't believe I did that workout," I've got them. They have the confidence in me that they know that when they come out, they're going to get a good workout. So, but then, you know, you're, you can't be with people all the time. So what you're hoping they take away from this is the exact same things that I try to teach them on the track is they can do it. And how I teach them how to do it is they do it. So, so basically once we go through this progression and they, they complete workouts and they do time trials at a certain time, they know they can take that same pattern, that same model, and apply it to a race. Um, so, so it's more that, you know, it's more practice. It's more programming, what I call programming, and less, you know, the psychological end where you go, oh, I got to do this, or, you know, you're trying really hard to come up with some kind of motivational speech and things like that. So I don't use that as much as I do the actual physical programming of the whole process. Yeah, I think a lot of it just goes back to confidence. You mentioned that I, I kind of lean towards like the, the mental motivation side. I would agree with that for sure. Um, I really like to think about how we think in those moments. But something that I, I had to go back to quite often in this most recent marathon prep was I have to build that confidence through the work and through the results so that when I step to the start line on race day, I know I can do it because the results are there. The proof is in the pudding. And then from there, it's just my job to handle the harder moments of that race, which also has probably already been practiced through the training. You've put yourself in those adverse situations, and you're relying upon the same things that have already gotten you to the start line. They're also going to get you to the finish line. That's right. And uh, Sarah a minute ago mentioned that she was racing, and she she harkened back to uh, one of the tempo runs she was doing in Boulder. And she could take that exact experience and apply it to an immediately an immediate experience in racing right then. And so that's one of the techniques that I would I would recommend people use. Go back in the race and say, I've done this before. Here's what I did it. And actually my training was harder than the race right now. And uh, so you can kind of make it up any way you want. A lot of times I'll ask my athletes, well, how did that go? And they'll say, blah, blah, blah. And I did this and I did that. And I said, well, if that works for you, do it. Um, it could be, 
it could be a little phrase that they have um, or a little, you know, something like uh, a catch word that they like or the visualization that they like. So I'm a big believer in doing what has worked for you and does work for you right now. And if I ask 10 people, you know, what their motivation was or how they set it up, I get 10 different answers. So uh, do what works for you, but, you know, come up with a pattern or come up with a a winning formula that seems to uh, produce the outcome that you want. And the the other thing is that, you know, um, I'm a big believer in fun fitness and friends and making it as fun as possible, uh, not only on race day, but every time you come out for a workout. And uh, how I do that is I take the focus off of hard work. Uh, I happen to be a believer that hard work are two of the most dangerous words in the, in the athletic lexicon because they don't really mean anything. So instead, I'll say, Sarah, today, here's what I want you to do. I want you to run exactly a 625 mile for the first interval here. And instead of thinking of the effort, you're thinking about hitting that time. And the effort completely goes away. Then I'll say, Sarah, the next one, what I want you to do is I want you to surge the middle 400 of this at, at 800 meters. We're going to surge hard at an exact same time. And I want your outcome to be a 620 mile overall. And instead of focusing on how hard it's going to be, you're focusing on hitting those numbers. So that's a, that's a coaching trick that I, that I use all the time. And it works 100% of the time. And people come up to me afterwards and say, oh, my God. That wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, because you weren't focused on how hard it's going to be. You were focused on completing the task. And a lot of that has to do with the, again, with the coach-athlete interaction. Because they're believing that I know what I'm talking about. And I I know what I'm talking about. And as a coach, <laughs> I, I know this is going to work for you. So, um, so, so Austin, what, what that does is... Once you start taking the emphasis off of the effort and putting it on task orientation, completing the task, executing the task, or executing the race plan, it makes your life a whole lot easier. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I love that. Earlier, you mentioned um, 10 principles, and I know that you probably hit on a few of those in that uh, part of the discussion. Could you just list what those 10 principles are um, for peak performance that you've kind of created and then maybe go in depth on like one or two that you feel like everyday runners struggle with the most. Well, I'll, I'll start, I'll start with the first one, which is planning and goal setting. And under that heading, and there's 10 of them, I'll, I'll walk you through those real quick, but it's planning. It's personal inventory Prediction, that is predicting your next time, your next, next uh, race, and that's a goal setting as well. But it, it's more technical. So the prediction part is more technical when I, where I'm talking about factoring in previous times and training and so forth. Uh, the next one is preparation and programming. And that's actually on the track is uh, learning how to warm up, learning how to program yourself to run uh, the time that you want. The next one we discussed in more detail was progression. In other words, building a progression in your training. Then practice techniques, uh, you know, coming out, warming up, going through a good, and this goes back to a lot of what Austin mentioned before is psychologically preparing yourself to run and and being ready to actually execute the workout. So number six is practice. Number seven is persistence. It means you don't miss workouts. You're consistent over time. You don't, you know, you're you're um, always there when you need to be there. Number eight is patience which is giving yourself time to develop. 
And, you know, I talk about an improvement window. So let's say Sarah's just beginning with Nell right now. She might have a four to six year improvement window um, if she hasn't been coached in the same techniques that we use. So being patient with that window is really important. Pacing is also important. In other words, you, we need to learn how to pace. And I would say that 90% of everybody out there doesn't really learn how to pace because they don't practice pacing. So pacing is number nine. And then peak performance is number 10. That's what we're looking at. The outcome from all this diff these different uh, peak performance principles that we use. But uh, Austin, in answer to your question, going back to, to the first one, which is planning, um, what you want to do, and especially if you're working with a coach, is sit down and I, I like to use a one-year window, uh, a one-year uh, look at things in, in terms of goal setting, because what that does is it takes the pressure off the short term. So let's say in the short term you want to run a half marathon, and let's say that you know you're so focused on that, the it, you get too wound up. So usually what I ask people when I first meet them is says, okay, you're training for the half marathon, let's say in three months from now or four months from now. The question I ask him is that your last half marathon? Are you going to quit running after that half marathon? And they'll kind of look at me during the headlights and they say, what are you talking about? I said, well, are you going to retire after the first half marathon? And they'll say, no, I, I want to keep running. I said, good, good. So here's the progression we're going to build over time. We're going to shoot for this first half marathon. We're going to go 129. All right. And maybe the next, in the next six months, we'll shoot for a 127. So we're building this progression into our planning cycle. And we kind of know, okay, here's what we're going to do. So that planning is really important. And it has to be documented. you got to sit down, have the athlete write out what they want to do, um, and then you can work with it. Usually when I do the goal setting, I don't edit it all. I say, what do you want to do? I say, I want to run a, a 259 marathon. I say, good. I'll tell you exactly what it takes to do a 259 marathon down to the number of miles per day, the intervals, the tempo runs, all the other, other criteria that you need to run that time. So I'm very specific about what um, I ask them to do. And it's directly tied to that, that goal that they're up, that are coming up, that's coming up. So I build that all to, into the planning cycle. Once I have that plan down, then I can write the program and build all these other 10 principles into the, uh, the training program. So that's kind of a high-level discussion of planning. Uh, really, but, but Sarah, when I get, and you do this with your athletes when you sit down, you're going to write down exactly every workout they're going to do for the next uh, whatever time period it is. And they're going to, when they come out, they know exactly what they need to do to get to their goal. And you're going to say, okay, you're either ahead of schedule, you're on schedule, or behind schedule. And you can tell from, from the workouts mm -hmm. pretty much how they're doing. Yeah. So it's helpful to to help yeah. them predict those times going into the future because then it's the the race itself you know, the outcome is more reasonable and it's more comparable to what they they planned in the first place. Absolutely, yeah. It, it's planning is a huge piece to running well and racing well. And I mean, I definitely have athletes that you know, add things in last minute and all the things I'm sure we all do. And, and that happens, but when you really do have that long, that long game mindset, it's so much easier to be able to plan to program and get that athlete to and through the finish line, reaching their goals than, um, an athlete that's making changes and adjusting and jumping into races and moving races up and all the things. 
Um, but that's also life. And so we get to be flexible with that too. Um, I'm curious to know, Rick, if someone is shooting for a 259 marathon, what does that tempo pace look like? Oh yeah. Very good. <laughs> so, um, that, that opens up a discussion about, you know, overall training. So in a training progression that you're building for your athlete, Sarah, um, you have milestones and there's certain criteria that, you know, are important to, you know, or essential, I should say, in um, meeting to achieve that goal of the 259. So um, let's say I've got a, usually I work with a 14 week build up for a marathon and uh, that gives you enough time to do long runs and talk about progression and talk about, uh, you know, getting faster over that, that block of time. Uh, so um, the uh, let's take that five times uh, 1600 meters. That's a bellwether workout. So let's say you can average for those six minutes per mile at altitude. That's going to translate to somewhere in the, um, uh, let's say, one uh, high 120s for a half marathon, uh, maybe in the 130 range. I'm not sure exactly. I have to go back and look at the numbers. So that's a bellwether marathon. So what I would do in mm-hmm. your case is let's say I take the six, six minutes and I take a ratio and I take that ratio six minutes to the half marathon and I would work at that ratio. The ratio I use the most is the half marathon to the marathon. And if I look at the Jack, Jack Daniels chart, it's 2.1. Mm-hmm. It's a 2.1 ratio. So Sarah, if you can run an altitude of 128, if I take 2.1 against that, that should give you a good idea of what your marathon could be at sea level. So, um, but everybody has their own ratio. So for example, I did a ratio with, with Cara D'Amato and her time is 2.05 half marathon to marathon. And Emily Sisson, oh. Emily Sisson's is exactly the same, 2.05. What that says is they're extremely efficient and they can maintain a pace closer to their half marathon pace than most people can. Most people, it's more like 2.1 plus. And if I did, I think Nell's is like 2.09. So if I take her half marathon time and multiply it by 2.09, that would give her a good idea of how fast she can run a half mar- or full marathon. So um, then I can take a 5,000-meter time or a 10,000-meter time, and they're not as reliable as predictors as a half-marathon time, but they're good predictors of either a half-marathon mm-hmm. or, in some cases, you can take a 10K time and predict mm-hmm. a half-marathon or a full marathon, I'm sorry. Uh, but a lot of that has to do with personal data. So I'm a big believer in, in collecting a lot of personal data so you can use that data to ratio it out. And you can use it uh, from marathon, uh, from uh, interval training, from tempo runs, but more importantly, from races. So the races and tempo and uh, time trials are the most important um, predictors of your ability to run a half marathon or any other distance for that matter, including the marathon. So uh, as if I'm coaching and, or, or teaching coaches how to do this, then I would go ahead and start to compile uh, the ratios for all their different distances from everything from a mile all the way up to a marathon. And you can use those ratios to plan their workouts and or predict their times. All right. I would love to transition to the Olympic trials, which are set in Orlando, Florida, this February. It's February 
3rd. Um, it was previously a noon start in Orlando, and uh, just recently they have updated it to a 10 a.m. start, which I think is really going to help all of the athletes run maybe their stronger or a stronger race. Um, Rick, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the upcoming Olympic trials, um, about the time change, about the course, which is a three eight mile loop course with a 2.2 mile loop course at the very beginning. So it's a flat, fast course with a lot of loops and a 10 a.m. start. What do you think? Well, that's better. That's progress. Um, a lot of times these things take on a life of their own, the trials. Um, and there's, there's so many variables when you talk about the marathon that uh, you have to sort of factor all these things in as a runner. So when it boils right down to it, um, now we can plan. We have data on weather patterns that time of year, and we can predict a little bit, you know, as far as we can, what's going to happen down there. So um, I'm thinking it's going to be humid, probably up in the 70 plus percent, and it's probably going to be in the 70 degree range. So what happens there is the, it's a little like New York last year. It becomes more, a lot more strategic and less, let's just go for it uh, because some people will not adapt to that environment very well, while others will. So I go back to 2004 Olympics in Athens. It was probably in the 90s, I think, at that time. And uh, Paula Radcliffe, I was telling you the story, Paula Radcliffe took off and she was leading at 20 miles. And right about 20 miles, she just collapsed into a heap and stopped on the side of the road. So she got uh, a ride back into the finish uh, in the meat wagon. But we know that the smaller women who are very small in stature should have an advantage because they ventilate better. So I was talking to an exercise physiologist after that race. He says, yeah, we could have predicted the Japanese woman would win because they're coming in at 95 pounds. Uh, they're going to be about five feet to five two in stature. So they just ventilate better. They're going to have an advantage. And it's real. It's not like something we just make up. Uh, but when you're talking about high humidity and, and higher temperatures, you have to make that adjustment. Uh, last year before New York, I cautioned my runners to go out very conservatively. And had I been, caught, been talking or coaching some of the other people, I would have said the same thing. So what you saw amongst the Americans was um, trying to go out with the leaders, which they did. But they ended, a lot of them ended up earning huge positive splits. We're talking about anywhere between five to 10 minute positive splits between the first half and the second half. So I would caution my runners and any runners to be very conservative, especially if it turns out to be a humid day and a warm, warm day, even at 10 o'clock in the morning. So I would guess the difference between 10 and noon would be only a few degrees, maybe as much as five degrees. Uh, let's say noon would be 80 degrees and uh, 10 o'clock would be 75 degrees. So we'll have to go back and do that analysis and figure out, okay, what's what's our strategy here? So with respect to, um, I'll, I'll probably have three people running and I'll tell all three of them, you just be very cautious going out, try and work yourself into the race, uh, stay in contact, but don't try to lead the race or compete early on in the early going. Uh, and, and so keep we're not shooting for time. We're shooting for a place finish. We want to maximize that place finish. And I'm predicting that we're going to have a very close finish in this 
And I think that probably the top, say, eight to 10 women will be within one minute of each other, because I think it's going to break down to um, a strategic race, wherein um, they run very conservatively, and then it breaks up in the last, maybe in the last four miles or so. Uh, Usually you're going to lose some people at 10,000 to go. Uh, but you still have a lot of people hanging in there with uh, with less than 10,000 meters to go. Uh, again, we're not concerned about the time. We're concerned about the place finish. So to that extent, we want to run strategically. Um, as far as the course is concerned, uh, nobody's going to be used to running a loop course of that distance. So we have to make the psychological adjustment. And I know I was talking to guys at Austin in particular about uh, visualization. We're going to do a lot of visualizing running on a short course because it's almost like running a track meet. Uh, I'm not sure what the math is, but it's a whole bunch of loops on a short course. So you have to be ready for a couple of things. One is seeing the same scenery every time. Uh, And it's going to get tedious, more tedious than anything else. Then the other thing is I'm not sure how the uh, crowds will be down there. But if I go back to Atlanta uh, four years ago, the crowds were really loud, and so you're you run through the the crowds, and your ears were ringing for some several minutes after that. Then it's quiet for some extended period of time. But on a two mile course, it might be that people are in your ears the entire time. So we have to be ready for that psychologically. And uh, you know what the the uh, pro football teams do is they go into their practice stadium and they pump um, noise into there. So we might try and do a little bit of that type of thing, uh, or at least visualize that going into the uh, into the trials. Um, and so the other thing is that it's coming right up uh, early February is when the, the meet is. So it's an awkward time. The trials tend to be at awkward times. And a lot of times there's variables uh, historically where you're dealing with weather, you're dealing with surface. I do not know what the surface is going to be like down there, so we have to do some research there. And I know the USATF has set up uh, a practice run or two, wherein they shut the streets down for a couple hours and people go out and run it. So that'll be important to figure out what we're dealing with as far as the surface is concerned, because that could come into play a little bit if it's rough. Uh, I know uh, I took some athletes, three athletes out to the 2000 trials, and it turns out it was warm and the, uh, the surface was pavement, but it was a rough pavement. And you've seen that the, the like it's almost like gravel on top of pavement, and um, Patty Murray, who is coaching, has a little bit of a, a torque on her every time she lands. She got through about 16 miles and had to drop out. She her legs, are, her feet were just uh, just blistered up, and she couldn't continue. Um, so biomechanics come into play, even you know if it's a rough surface. Um, if you have any kind of a, a problem uh, or a flaw in your biomechanics, it can show up depending on what the surface is. And there's there's also the things that you can't predict either. Um, so it was very windy at um, Atlanta, and it was cold. And, I mean, the women were just getting beat up every time they ran into the wind, and then they would coast coming back out of it. But it was a multiple loop course, and it was four loops. So they had to deal with the wind. And I'm not sure how windy it is in Orlando, but that's another thing we need to take a look at. So there's, that's kind of a, uh, a summary of what, you know, we're looking at here for the trials. But in the meantime, we, we try to prepare as best we can with simulations and, 
you know, we'll probably develop a little short loop we do some practice runs on, which you can do very easily in Boulder. There's a bunch of little short loops that we can do. So. Thank you. Thank you for that insight. I have a few questions yeah. right off of that. You mentioned um, the tediousness, if that's a word, from a shorter loop. Um, take us into that a little bit deeper as far as the mindset's concerned, because I feel like as runners, we are kings and queens of a tedious approach. Um, do you feel like in a racing environment, it's more preferred to have a change of scenery, or can that almost be to an advantage for many of Well, uh, so let's take um, the majors. Uh, uh, Boston, for example, point to point. Um, Berlin is a huge loop, complex loop, where you're not going to see the same thing twice. Um, I'm not sure about Tokyo, but I think that's very similar. And Chicago is one gigantic loop. You're not going to do little loops on that. So bottom line is nobody is going to be used to running a loop, a small loop course. And everybody's going to react to it a little bit differently. So the mindset would be preparation, always preparation. And no matter what the course is, you got to be prepared for it. So in, uh, in my training, we'll probably do a little simulation, maybe six loops on a two-and-a-half-mile loop. And we can do that in North Boulder up uh, in the Twin Lakes area. That should work out very, very well. And um, so we're going to be focused on running a pace and so forth. So the tediousness is, you know, it's a little bit secondary to what we're after here. But we do want to understand that the repetition is something we're not used to. We just need to practice that before we go in there. So again, it's about uh, we'll do some simulations out there and practice that and see what it looks like and see what the reaction is, because I'm not sure what it would be from the various athletes. Um, I should have three people going. And so we'll probably all get together and do some sub-maximal running uh, on those little loops. Um, I know myself, running 10,000 meters on the track, you're really focused on hitting your pace. So I'm not too concerned about it, but you just need to be aware of it more than anything else. Gotcha. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to ask you about um, for myself, for Sarah, and for many of our listeners, we are used to racing the clock, not so much racing other athletes. Um, Take us into that mindset of being in it to place in the top three to then qualify for the Olympics, as opposed to trying to clip off specific um, time splits and then, you know, adjust from there. In this situation, you're adjusting to the pacing of the other athletes. What is that like from the elite athlete That's a great question. And that really kind of boils down to what this is all about. Because um, I use a, a word that I apply to running, which is a more intuition running intuitively, um, and uh, Nell is very good at that, uh, and Molly is very good at that. Basically, what, um, what it boils down to is you have to listen to your body the entire way. Now, it's a little risky, either fast or slow. So at the Atlanta trials, um, it was an honest pace. It was very honest pace, but there were a bunch of women very well prepared to handle that pace through 20 miles. It broke up at 20 miles where um, you know, for whatever reason, people would fall off and other people would continue at that same pace. Um, but what you're trying to do is stay in contact. And that is visual, so you can see the people in front of you, as well as is mental, the mental mindset. 
knowing that, okay, if they get a little bit farther ahead, it's okay. It's a long ways to go. And pace-oriented. So you want to stay within yourself for the first 20 miles so you can have enough left in the last 10K to, be, to compete. So, but on the other hand, you don't want to, like in Nell's case, I would never recommend that she leads. Um, and it could go slow. It could be extremely um, strategic. And things may not break up until, like I said before, I get a feeling it's going to be a lot of women finishing with a, a couple of minutes in the last uh, in the last few miles of the race. So it's about pacing. It's about contact, contact with your competition, and reading what they do. And it could be sort of a cat and mouse kind of thing where somebody takes the lead and they push it a little bit. They get tired. They back off a little bit. So if I'm running, I'm going to stay even pace, no matter what anybody else does. I'll stay in pace. They can surge, back off, surge, back off. I'm going to stay on my pace, my game plan, but still stay in contact and have enough to compete in that last 10K. That's sort of how I would look at racing uh, at, the, uh, at the trials, especially if it's warm. Well, it's going to be exciting, no doubt. It's going to be a really great day for the American men and women. And I can't wait to see what unfolds and what happens. Um, Rick, we have absolutely loved having you on today. As we kind of close this episode out, we'd love to know why you love to run. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, this time I'm not caught by so much surprise. But um, so if I go back, and this is very common with my counterparts, and I go back and look at my background growing up in sports uh, in Los Alamos, New Mexico. I was fortunate enough to play anything that was available. So I, I played uh, football from, a you know, touch football when I was in grade school and then t- tackle football in middle school, actually uh, junior high school. And I played baseball from the time I was like eight or nine through my 15, age 15, Babe Ruth baseball. I played basketball, uh, YMCA basketball, and then I played uh, junior high basketball and high school basketball through my sophomore year. Um, I, pl- I did track. Um, we had track meets, uh, city track meets um, in grade school. And then I did um, middle school track and high school track. And then in the summer times, I took tennis lessons. And so I know, no matter what I did, I, I just enjoyed competing. And uh, running was just another thing that I did up to to a certain point. So I wasn't really training per se. I was just, oh, oh track is it's track season now. So um, I'm not sure Austin or you would have experienced this, but it's season to season. So we do basketball in the wintertime, and then we stop playing basketball, and then pick up track and or uh, uh, baseball in the springtime. And that would go through summertime. We'd have a break. So I'd play tennis in the summertime. And I come back and, and do uh, uh, football in the fall. Then I come back and do basketball again. So we go through those cycles. But it wasn't continuous. We do one sport and stop and do the next sport. So uh, when I was in, um, when I was a sophomore in high school, that was my first year of high school, uh, I decided to, decided to retire from football. So I retired from football. I played quarterback because I weighed like 100 and five pounds or something like that. I said, I'm not going to beat myself up here. I'm going out for cross country. So that was my first year of cross country. And I got, and it was, I was prepared. I, I did some training before the season started. I go out and run a couple of miles with my friend, Ernie Romero. And uh, so when we came to the, 
to the season itself, I was kind of prepared, but it was hard because, you know, we're out doing intervals and we do hard runs up and down the hills. And it was very, it's very hilly and I'm training at 7,000 feet. So your legs are always burning. And that year, I think I finished seventh at, at the regional meet and didn't make state, but I had a lot of fun doing it. And it, running for me was just like another sport. Um, you know, when I played baseball, I loved to do the pitching. I like to practice and things like that. Same with running. I just like to compete. And so it turned out to be a better runner than I was a basketball player. I was a better runner than I was a football player because I was so tiny. A uh, better runner than I was any other sport. So I said, hey, this is going to be my thing. And I embraced that and um, loved the training, uh, loved the competition, uh, especially in New Mexico, because you're competing against uh, all kinds of different people. Go to Albuquerque and you got the big schools. You go to Jemez Pueblo, you got the, the Native Americans. Uh, you go uh, down to uh, Taos and you're running at high altitude against a whole, a whole cadre of different kinds of people. And then we love going down to the, the state track meets in Albuquerque and competing down there as well. So really, my, my background was really uh, track and in high school. And I did some road racing, too. Actually, I won a state championship at 20 kilometers, uh, the USATF thing, which was the AAU at the time. So I, you know, I'd find the road races, like we did a 10-mile race on the track. And I was doing these things when I was still in high school. So I was dabbling in some of the more endurance-oriented type of things going there, too. But I was... Um, uh, my neighbors were uh, Tony Sandoval, my protege, who ended up winning the Olympic trials. I coached him in high school and college. He won the trials in 1980 and didn't go, get to go to the, to the um, Olympics because of uh, the boycott. And uh, then Lynn Bjorklund, who was the uh, national junior record holder for 3,000 meters for about 30 years, lived right next door to me. And then the other next door neighbors were runners, too. So we had a whole neighborhood of runners. So it made it a lot of fun. We could get together and do workouts together and, and things like that. And I know I know Lynn would run with Tony and I, Tony Sandoval and I, up the side of the mountain. We'd do a 17-mile loop up to uh, Parito Ski Area and then drop back down. And we're running, and here's Lynn right behind us. Lynn would stay up the entire way. She was probably she's the most talented woman that I've ever met in running um, and ended up, you know, beating the Soviet Union, the Soviets in um track and field back in the day, back when the Cold War was still going. So that was kind of a big deal. So it was the people as well as the, the training and the environment was great in Los Alamos. Uh, so we had a great situation there. So um, it was easy to like running. It was easy to love running and uh, embrace it and, and be good at it. So um, it was great. I mean, it's fun. You know, that my experience growing up with running was, was really quite unique. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And after that, I started doing more endurance type work. Um, in college, I ran 5,000 meters and 10,000 meters. I set some records at Harvard. Um, I was second at the Penn Relays one year. Uh, so I, was, you know, I didn't really run that much in college, but I tried to maximize whatever I could. And then later on, you know, becoming an open run professional runner. So no matter what phase of running, even as a master's runner, I won three national championships. Um, I loved it no matter what level it was. So that's kind of, kind of it. That's so cool. Absolutely amazing. (laughs) You are so inspiring and it's just so awesome to hear your story and to like hear, uh, what you've accomplished and how you're helping others achieve their goals. And you have so 
much knowledge. I know for sure we're definitely, we would definitely love to have you back on the podcast again. Thank you so much, Rick, for your time today. Austin and I really appreciate you. And if anyone, if our viewers, our audience is looking um, to reach out to you, where can they find you online? Yeah, so they can go to my website and uh, kind of peruse the website. I've written some things on there. There's uh, try to get that thing updated. but And then there's a link uh, if they're interested in uh, doing one of my programs. RickRojasRunning.com Great. Thank you so much, Rick. It was uh, truly truly a pleasure to have you on. And uh, thank you for all the information you shared with us today. Yeah, I hope to spend more time with you guys in the future.